New Mexico, 1988. Forrest Fenn was dying. Having served in Vietnam as an Air Force major, the last thing he expected to kill him was cancer. His doctors gave him a life expectancy of three months and a survival rate of 20%. In the years following war, Forrest Fenn had led a colorful and, I think it's fair to say, somewhat roguish life. Trouble never stopped being Mr. Fenn's constant companion, even when he opened a gallery with a friend and mentor, Rex Aerosmith. Though art dealing appeared on the surface an entirely more peaceful career, Fenn was drawn to the high-stakes business side of the profession. He eventually opened up his own gallery with his wife, Peggy, and made a point to purchase works from new, young, or struggling artists in the community. Largely, good karma. Not so good karma? Fenn came under scrutiny for openly selling art forgeries, which I suppose is still better than lying about forgeries, but hey, I don't make the rules. So by 1988, when Fenn received a terrifying and almost certain prognosis, he had already accumulated a supply of impressive antiques and wealth. Reflecting on his past and wanting to leave this earth having done some selfless good on his terms, Fenn came up with a clever and amusing idea. One last adventure. But not necessarily for himself. Having hunted for and acquired treasures the somewhat boring and realistic way, he wanted to give the world an authentic treasure hunt. Or in his own words, to give people some hope. So, being an antiquities dealer, he got his hands on an authentic 12th century Romanesque 10 by 10 by 5 box, which is inches by the way, which he purchased at $25,000. Think of a chest of pirate's booty or any treasure chest in Dungeons and Dragons and you have the right idea of what we're talking about here. Fenn began to fill the chest with real gold coins, nuggets, gems, and antiques from his own collection. And these weren't just valuable artifacts either. These were some of Fenn's personal favorite pieces, which elevated the artifacts to treasures in both a literal and poetic sense. Fenn then went location scouting for the perfect place to conceal his box of loot. He chose his location, which some say is the Rocky Mountains, and started to formulate where to best tie the chest and how to go about leaving behind a string of enticing clues. In a romantically morbid coup de grace, Fenn intended to walk into the wilderness with the chest and die alongside it, transforming himself into a legend in the process. Then this would have been in keeping with so many old pirate and adventure stories of yore, where the skeletons of fools and heroes alike are often discovered with a wealth that costs them their lives. But Fenn never got the chance to do it. At least not in 1988, because as of this podcast recording in January 2019, Forrest Fenn is still very much alive, having survived both war and a devastating bout of cancer. That said, Fenn had made a promise, whether to himself or the powers that be, to leave behind a legacy that could give people a sense of wonder. The treasure box remained hidden in his private vault until around 2008, when the Great Recession threw the lives of many Americans into a tailspin. Seeing so many people's lives upended, Fenn decided the time was right to head into the wilderness and make good on his word. At 80 years old, he hid his treasure chest and wrote up a poem dedicated to the goddess Minerva that served as a series of clues leading to the whereabouts of his hidden fortune. To this day, not a soul has found it. But that hasn't stopped people from sometimes literally putting their lives on the line to go looking for fortune and glory. And Fenn is not alone in his creation of a very real treasure hunt. 
Though this podcast has focused exclusively on arts and artifacts that have been misplaced due to numerous circumstances, on this episode, we dive into what happens when someone intentionally loses a treasure. All for the thrill of the hunt. England, 1979. British painter Kit Williams had a problem with illustrated children's books. For all the time spent meticulously crafting paintings for an audience, people were quick to flip through the books without ever really paying attention to the details. Children's books were written off as a media that served a small audience for a specific purpose. The art viewed as merely a mean to an end or even an afterthought. When publishers Jonathan Cape courted Williams for a book, they told him that they wished to create something that no one had ever done before. And so Kit Williams spent the next two years creating 15 highly detailed works of art for what appeared at first to be a rather simple tale. The result was 1979's book, Masquerade. Masquerade told the story of Jack Hare. A hare, yes, they're different than rabbits, I do research, don't at me, tasked by the moon to deliver a gift to her lover, the sun. The story ends in disappointment for Jack, and presumably that big burning orange thing in the sky, when it's discovered he's lost the gift somewhere along the way. That gift was a bejeweled 18-carat pendant, also crafted by Kit Williams, that was hidden somewhere out in the real world. And far from being a simple children's book, the pages of Masquerade were all intricately designed puzzles that, when wholly deciphered, revealed the major clue to the real-life whereabouts of the golden pendant. The treasure was concealed in a hair-shaped box immune to the elements and metal detectors, and inscribed with the words, I am the keeper of the jewel of Masquerade, which lies waiting safe inside me for you, or eternity. On August 7, 1979, its burial was witnessed by game show host and British TV presenter Bamber Gascoigne, who concealed the burial site with a literal piece of cow poop. And then the book was published. Kit assured readers that all of the clues they needed were contained within the illustrations, and the treasure was accessible from a public space. In anticipation that Masquerade might draw in an international audience, spoilers, it did, Kit promised that he would confirm the first cracked guess provided it was sent to him via postal mail. Williams and his publishers could not have anticipated that their experiment would soon become a national sensation and an obsession. Though Williams was happy to see so much attention paid to his work, he soon felt the backlash of celebrity, as people from around the world began to hound him for details concerning the whereabouts of the treasure, and art critics began to see him more of a gimmick than an artist. Dismayed, Williams shielded away from the public and produced smaller works of art. All the while, the golden hair's hiding place remained a secret. It took four years until someone found it, and 20 years before the details behind the treasure's grand reveal came to light. However, the ultimate payoff was plagued by both scandal and what was seen as an anticlimactic ending. 
two physics teachers, Mike Barker of William Holmes Grammar School and John Rousseau of Russell School, were able to successfully crack the code included in Kit Williams' paintings, which had a very Newtonian physics bent. The details don't really make for good podcast, but you can look them up online. When the code was cracked, the teachers were left with the phrase, Catherine's long finger overshadows earth, buried yellow amulet, midday points the hour in light of equinox. Look, you. If you take the first letter of every word in the sentence, the reader is left with the phrase, close by Amphil. This points to Amphil Park. Lo- I don't really know how you pronounce that. I didn't look it up. Just go look it up. Located in Bedfordshire, England. The Catherine in question was the cross-shaped Catherine of Aragon Monument. The final clue was part of the story and illustrations themselves, the distance between night and day, or the equinox. And the precise burial point was where the tip of the monument shadow touched the earth at noon on either the autumn or spring equinox. The teachers dug at this exact location and found nothing. Confused and dismayed, because I would be too, they walked away without the treasure, though they had sent their guests to Kit Williams regardless. Then came along a gentleman named Ken Thomas, who, upon sifting through the mound of dirt left behind from Rousseau and Barker's efforts, found the box containing the golden hair. The team had dug it up without even realizing it. Prior to this, Thomas had sent a sketch along to Kit Williams per the illustrator's promise to confirm the treasure if a correct guess was delivered. Williams told Thomas to dig in the suggested location, and that's where this tale should have ended. However, a few years later, an investigation into the truth uncovered something much more disappointing. In reality, Ken Thomas was the pseudonym of Dougal Thompson, a man with a suspicious connection to Kit Williams. His business partner was the boyfriend of a woman named Veronica Robertson, who happened to be Kit Williams' ex. Drama. Veronica's current boyfriend had convinced Robertson, an animal rights activist, to disclose the whereabouts of the golden hair, promising Veronica that he would donate the monetary value of the treasure to an animal rights charity. Kit Williams had no idea that his ex, who I'm just going to point out was probably well-intentioned and most likely manipulated here, had spilled the beans. But it didn't matter. The media and the public were furious, and Williams was shamed despite his apologies. Shocking absolutely nobody who's had a bad ex-boyfriend, Thompson's business partner didn't use the hair for a charitable cause. Shocker. While I couldn't find any details about where his involvement in this caper ended, Thompson himself went on to found a software company with the explicit purpose of regurgitating the treasure hunt in a digital format. The computer game Hair Razor. I know. Because there is some justice in the story, he absolutely failed in his endeavors, and when the company tanked in 1988, he had no choice but to sell the golden hair to Sotheby's auction house. After this, both the treasure and the details of its initial discovery remained a secret for 20 years. Then, in 2009, a special BBC radio program documented the whole strange affair. Williams was able to make peace with what had happened, and expressed his wish to see his creation one last time. Now, this was unlikely, as the hair was auctioned off to an anonymous buyer from, quote-unquote, the Far East. I'm personally guessing Japan solely based on the fact that the book was successfully published there. In a strange twist of fate, the documentary reached the granddaughter of the buyer in question, who arranged for Williams to come and view the treasure personally. This reunion was later filmed for a documentary on the subject. Williams discovered that the gentleman who had purchased the golden hair had done so as a Christmas present for his wife, but he had since passed on. Ultimately, 
This reunion proved a redemptive moment in this near 40-year saga. For better or worse, Kit Williams' treasure hunt kicked off a phenomena, as other publishers, with deep pockets I should add, decided to cash in on the craze known as the armchair treasure hunt. While I won't cover all of these works, there are two standout examples of the genre, and these hunts have yet to be solved. In 1982, while the British were still digging up their neighbors' lawns, author Byron Price was about to release a fantasy novel with a twist. The Secret, which has nothing to do with that woo-woo self-help book about the laws of attraction, is an illustrated saga about a race of magical fairy creatures migrating to the Americas to flee the dominance of mankind. Part of the plot details how the fairy folk, traditionally being the keepers of fantastic wealth, brought their treasures over with them and then scattered them throughout the New World. It's that later part that Price decided to tie into a real-life treasure hunt, the New World being North America. Before the book's release, Price journeyed across the continent and concealed 12 ceramic jars, each containing one of 12 keys to a safe deposit box in New York City, which would reward the clever finder one of 12 gems, each worth $1,000. Price enlisted an illustrator named John Jude Palancar, who also did the covers for the popular Aragon series of books, and much like Masquerade, readers would have to search the illustrations for hidden clues to the cask's whereabouts. But unlike Masquerade, only two of the 12 keys have ever been recovered, meaning there are still 10 gems out there waiting to be retrieved by whoever solves one of the longest ongoing armchair treasure hunts. At first, it looked like the secret would be solved within the first few years of its release, when in 1984, a group of three teenagers found the first key in Grant Park, Chicago. And it wasn't until 2004 that two members from Quest for Treasure, a forum devoted to the secret, discovered the second key in Cleveland. Many public figures have searched for the treasure, including James Renner, who follows me on Twitter. Hi, James. With only two keys uncovered, it was presumed that author Byron Price would eventually disclose the location of the other ten. Then, on July 9, 2005, Price was killed in a traffic accident while on the way to a synagogue service. He was 52 years old. The secret, it seemed, died with him. In the aftermath, his publishing company was acquired by another press, and it was assumed Byron Price's fable gems were caught up in the takeover. Then, Price's widow, Sandy Mendelssohn, dropped a bomb when she told Vice that she was safekeeping the treasure. She was more than willing to fulfill her husband's promise to award the gems to whoever found the other 10 keys. One presumed location is in a park in Milwaukee, based on an illustration which shows the outline of a building that looks exactly like their city hall. However, park officials are somewhat hostile towards those who come to the park trying to dig up the place, and they've halted any digging without permits. But they're also of the mind that the sooner the treasure's found, the sooner they can keep these pesky kids out of their park. So they're willing to allow excavations once someone comes forward with compelling evidence. While the other keys are in dispute, recent attention has focused on New York City. You know, where I used to live. I was lucky enough to have a Facebook chat with my friend Ryan, who I recently found out was a devoted secret treasure hunter, and one of several New Yorkers currently on the case. The following is his account, how he came to be involved in The Secret, and where the next key might be uncovered. A friend of mine had the original book lying around on his shelf. I asked him what it was, and he said it was an original copy of a treasure hunt from years ago. 
Of course, I assumed it was a piece of fiction, so I read a bit and realized it described real locations. When I made this observation, he said, yeah, most of them haven't been found, and I was hooked. He had tried years beforehand with no luck, but together we spent countless hours after work poring over every detail, interpreting clues, and researching New York City in the 70s and 80s. We decided that the likeliest cities are Los Angeles, Charleston, Roanoke Island, St. Augustine, New Orleans, Houston, Montreal, Milwaukee, Boston, and of course, New York. And there's a lot of speculation about the New York key. As you know, the actual buried object is a clear box with a ceramic cast containing a ceramic key inside. Metal detection is very nearly impossible, though the keys were melded around a metal wire. Each treasure is 3.5 feet underground, and as far as the New York treasure, we have some very clear clues and some that are open to interpretation at this point. I find that most theories are pretty unique, but some simple research can strengthen or destroy a good argument. For instance, a friend of mine saw me reading the book and insisted the treasure must be on Governor's Island. I'd never been, so my team and I arranged an expedition on a miserable rainy day. It was a good tour. Things lined up with the final instructions leading up a large man-made hilltop with jagged rocks and a scenic outlook of the harbor, Ellis Island, and Lady Liberty. The location had all the signs. It also had a marker stating that it was completed in 2016. And after some research upon return, I found that Governor's Island was a military base until the 90s, and it was only open to the public in 2003. So I've ruled out the island entirely. Byron Price was not in the military. He wouldn't have had access to bury anything there. One member of my team still swears it must be there, but I don't think it's a realistic possibility. I've seen theories from Dumbo to Williamsburg, Astoria, Central Park, Lower Manhattan, and even Staten Island or Jersey. And they're all valid until ruled out. Or the treasure is found. Armchair treasure hunts were not a passing fad, even after the rise of electronic entertainment in the late 1980s. In 1993, a mysterious French writer named Max Valentin teamed up with artist Michel Becker to create Sur la Trace de la Chouette d'Or, which for those of you who never took high school French, is on the trail of the Golden Owl. Max Valentin was the pseudonym of Regis Hauser, a former rally driver, marketing consultant, and puzzle creator, so basically the coolest person ever. Hauser conceived of the Golden Owl in the late 70s, right around the time Masquerade was starting to rise in popularity. Becker created the clue-laden drawings as well as the eponymous owl statuette, 10 inches high, 20 inches wide, and 33 pounds of gold, silver, and diamonds, estimated at 150,000 euros. This was the reward, but the key itself was a bronze replica that Hauser hid somewhere in France on April 23, 1993. The clues themselves involved cryptic passages of text, wordplay, math, probably dead philosophers, I don't know, it's in French, and just a lot of complicated stuff that most people outside of Reddit don't have time for. Hauser expected the hunt to last two months tops, but was quoted as saying, if all the searchers put all their knowledge together, the owl would be found in two hours. It's been 25 years. In seeing that hunters were struggling, Hauser began giving out clues via his own Minitel server. If you don't know what a Minitel is, Reply All actually has a great podcast episode about it that you should totally check out. But basically, France-exclusive phone, internet, computer, terminal, network, thing. Anyways, Hauser disseminated clues from this French Skype, but nobody cracked the case. 
Then, and I promise I'm not making this up just for the drama, Hauser died in 2009, leaving behind a sealed envelope containing the whereabouts of the owl to the charge of his lawyers. It is now widely believed that the location of the owl is in the township of Dabo in Lausselle. The search for the golden owl, much like its predecessors, hasn't escaped controversy either. In 2004, the French courts seized the statue, claiming that the trustees of the treasure hunt could no longer pay for its security, but they managed to get it back in 2008. Then in 2011, Michel Becker, who had illustrated the book, claimed sole ownership of the owl as its creator and tried to sell it off. He was thwarted by the combined efforts of a treasure hunter's guild, because the French, and some lawyers. The courts ruled that the treasure did not belong to him, but to the individual who would solve the grand puzzle. That person has yet to be determined, and the owl is still out there. To this day, thousands of people have gone looking for Forrest Fenn's secret cache, buried presumably somewhere in the Rockies or Yellowstone National Park, or maybe even the Grand Canyon. The challenge is the clues that Fenn have willingly given out are widely open to interpretation, but that hasn't stopped would-be adventurers and treasure hunters who believe they've cracked this code. As they say, reward comes with the risk, and there are many who have risked their lives in the pursuit of something quite rare for a lost treasure. They guarantee that it can, without a doubt, be found. In 2016, a gentleman named Randy Bilyeu went missing while looking for the buried chest, only to succumb to the elements. 53-year-old Jeff Murphy traveled from Illinois to Yellowstone to uncover the Fen treasure and died after falling from a 500-foot drop. In 2017, two other individuals went looking for the treasure in Arkansas and Colorado, respectively, and were also found dead. Even as recent as 2018, a man was killed on the Colorado River when his raft overturned. Because of these incidents, Fenn has been criticized for indirectly putting other people's lives in danger. He's also courted controversy in other areas of his life, such as legally gray excavations of American Indian sites. And in 2009, the FBI raided his home and searched for illicitly traded artifacts, but no charges were filed. Fenn asserts that the accusations took a toll on his two friends and business partners who ended up killing themselves not long after. Fenn also asserted, because of the deaths associated with those who went looking for his buried loot, that he never intended to put anybody in danger, and that the place where the treasure is buried would be accessible to an 80-year-old man in a reasonably healthy condition. But he hasn't disclosed that fabled location, and has no intentions of doing so, even past his time. In a 2016 interview with NPR, Fenn said, No one knows where the treasure chest is but me. If I die tomorrow, the knowledge of that location goes in the coffin with me. Fenn's hope, as it has always been, is that the treasure hunt will encourage a new generation to explore the outdoors and inspire a sense of adventure. He continues to write and release his memoirs, with every subsequent release offering a new, tantalizing clue leading to the buried loot. In his memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, he offers up a map, which can also be viewed on his Instagram, yeah, he's with it, kids, and contains the following poem, said to be the key to the X that marks the proverbial spot. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. 
Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. This episode of Relic was written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you want the secret treasure map to my heart, then you can give Relic a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. We also have a Patreon featuring unique episodes on topics that are a bit off the beaten path, such as parallel universes, Bigfoot, and the most indecipherable mystery known to modern man, Kingdom Hearts. You also get stickers if you support Relic, so that's fine. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. Next time, w- wait a minute. I've been doing this podcast for two years now. Don't you think it's time I got off my chair and went on my own adventure? Well, I am. This winter, I will be going down under to explore the mysteries of Australia with help from some of its rising podcast voices. Be on the lookout for a special series of mid-season episodes and the conclusion of season two, Crimes and Curses, sometime at the start of spring or autumn. I'm not sure which one it will be for me where I am. (laughs) The adventure will continue.